You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. I was uh, listening to a book uh, by Chip Ingram recently on heaven, and he, he shared one of this, this opening uh, question that I have for you. He says, if, if I'll give you one, I have one basic question for you. I need you to get kind of one answer. You have two choices. And the two choices are this. If it, basically, you, you're gonna go to heaven, okay? You can go to heaven right now, or you can wait five years and go to heaven. But Either way, you're going to heaven, okay? Which, which one would you choose, right? You're like, oh, that's easy. I'd go to heaven right away, right? And then some of you are like, I'm, I just graduated. <laughs> I'm about to get married here soon or something. You know, I'd like, I'll, I'll wait five years, right? Or, you know, I've got, oh, there is a Celtics game tonight, you know? Like, do you think it could come tomorrow, you know? <laughs> and depending on your station in life, depending on what you've recently experienced, maybe you're, current position in life, you find yourself waking up every day longing for heaven, you find yourself in your heart, in your core, you're just like, I, I, every day that I get closer, I just cannot wait to be there. And then some, some of you maybe, you, you, you say, I, I honestly have thought about heaven in a long time. Like I just, I don't know, just going about my life, going about my day, and I, don't, I don't really think about the future, I don't really think about um, needing to be there in any way, you know? And then depending on kind of like I've said, what you've experienced, maybe, maybe these last couple of years have been really hard for you, maybe they've been really great for you. And so often I think it depends on maybe who we're longing to see, who we're missing. Maybe those loved ones that have gone on before us and we just honestly think about every day, like I just, in some ways I just cannot wait to get there. I just cannot wait to get whatever this is over with so that we can move on to the real reason that we're here. And I don't think that's a wrong thought in many ways. I feel like that's an actual thing that's probably called the human experience, the human life. When you've experienced loss, you've missed someone, or you watch the news, as I've heard even recently, as speaking about some of the really tragic things that happened in our country over the last several months. Occasionally, I was talking to somebody and they were just saying, man, sometimes doesn't it just make you wish for heaven sometimes, right? You see the tragedy, the loss. You see the sheer evil. You see how our own family, our own church family has witnessed some just sheer evil things. You see evil just right in your face. And it's those moments that make you long and wish for a better life. Like there's got to be a better way. There's just, there has to be something more beyond the tragedy and the hardship or even maybe it's not even just pure tragedy, it's just the longing in our hearts that we, we are heavenly minded. We have this heart for heaven, this desire, this, this hope for a future of something more. Or the other day, like I was just thinking about my dad. I lost him now two years ago this month. Two years ago and thinking about the, the loss and just thinking about him. You know, my, my daughter just graduated from, uh, from a school that my family's been heavily involved in for a long time. Uh, graduated, that's funny, I'm saying that. She graduated from kindergarten, people. So some of you are new, you're like, 
you're like, whoa, dude, you know, it's, and then, um, kindergarten, okay, so uh, not a big deal, I know, but for me, it was a big deal just because that was my first kid graduating from kindergarten from the school that my grandfather found, and she's fourth generation in that school, and I just thought about, you know, I would have loved for my dad to have been there to see that, you know, for him to hand the little diploma to my daughter, you know, his granddaughter, and just those moments where you experience this man, I wish he was here. I wish it was different, or I wish, man, we could just move on so I could see him again, right? And then there's other days where you just experience some just heavenly things. The other days, just sitting outside at my house, the kids were currently not fighting or crying, which is extraordinary, and, and sitting there, and the wind is, is blowing in the breeze. It's like the perfect, like, 75, you know what I'm saying? Like, that way, just mint, right? The wind is going, no bugs, and it was just heavenly. Now those moments in New Hampshire are few and far between, but enjoy them while they come, correct? And so you have that, and you're just literally where your mind says, man, this is heavenly, right? Um, those kinds of moments sometimes feel few and far between, but I do, I do admit that, that God is, has been good, and we can see so many things that are heaven-like here more than we realize. And the other day, as I was preparing for this sermon series, I was going through some notes that I had and I pulled out a piece of paper and uh, it was a, a piece of paper that was stuck in my dad's Bible that I found. And um, the paper has a quote on it from Adoniram Judson. I named my, my son Judson I, uh, after Adoniram Judson. He's been kind of a hero of mine. But my dad had a quote um, in, his, uh, in his Bible. And the quote says, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. Some of you graduates know exactly what that feels like, right? And actually the entirety of the quote, it was just a portion of a quote that my dad had copied down from Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary to Burma, if you're not familiar who he was, who translated the Bible into the Burmese language and uh, experienced great tragedy and yet his faith was firm. But Adoniram Judson says, I am not tired of my work, neither am I tired of this world. Yet, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. Maybe some of that is how you feel right now. Maybe, maybe it's not. But I think our theology and our doctrine about heaven is probably more important than you and I tend to realize and tend to think about. If heaven is something of which we cannot relate to, then what does it have for me besides just some kind of mysterious place of unknown bliss that I long to go to? Or if heaven, like we said last week, if heaven is nothing more than just a church service, and believe me, I'm a pastor, I love church, I love coming and seeing you, I enjoy preaching and teaching and hearing the worship, it is wonderful, but if heaven is just this eternal church service that never ends, like, is that something I really wanna go to forever? If heaven is, is immaterial and ethereal and only spiritual, then why would I want to go to something that lacks the concrete physical enjoyments that I have here on this earth if it's just kind of something non-physical? If heaven is only slightly better than hell uh, since I don't get tortured for eternity or something, then it's not really going to change how I live now if it's just you know, maybe a little better. Or if heaven doesn't maybe include my friends, then maybe I'll take my chances in the other place, people will say, right? It sounds more of a party over there anyways than this eternal boring church service. Or, or maybe if heaven just maybe just allows me to see my loved ones again, that's a wonderful thing that I'm looking for, but I also have a lot of loved ones here, so I find myself between the two. What do I have to look forward to? 
I think sometimes thinking about how we think about heaven is very important. And that's what the aim of the series is to do, to change the narrative potentially that we have in our minds about what heaven is going to be like and, uh, and, and what the future that we're longing for. And sometimes I'm afraid that our, our mindsets about heaven are so uh, easily controlled by what uh, the culture or what Hollywood would say about heaven. I stumbled upon this book while doing studies uh, by Maria Shriver. I think she's, I think it's Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife. I think she came out with a book called What's Heaven? And it's aimed at children trying to teach them what heaven is. And these are direct quotes from Hollywood's side of heaven. (laughs) It says, heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to the ones you love. Is, is, is that true? Um, if you're good enough throughout your life, you get to go to heaven. Direct quote from the book. And then she says, Grandma is alive in me and alive in you because I see her in you. And I, there's actually a quote on the site giving reviews and it says it can be from a child psychologist saying this is one of the worst books for children. <laughs> You have to be careful with these kinds of things because it's like, what exactly is heaven? And then uh, there's a famous poem that I that is stumbled upon too that is often read at funerals by Mary Elizabeth Fry. It, it carries with it oftentimes a more of a, a Buddhist kind of new age sense of life and the afterlife and death and heaven. And it says this, it's a very well known. It says, do not stand at my grave and weep. I'm not there, I do not sleep. I'm a thousand winds that blow. I'm diamonds that glint the snow. I'm sun unripened grain, I'm gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning hush, I'm a swift uplifting rush. Of quiet birds in circled flight, I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry, I am not there, I did not die. Now some of those aspects are maybe harmless enough that we can read and use, but I wonder if sometimes that's the feeling that we have around heaven and the afterlife and death. It becomes more of an all-absorbing new age kind of non-physical, non-material force whereby we just uh, kind of throw all of our beliefs about the afterlife and the unknown into this giant pantheistic blender and outspits our beliefs on heaven. Right, Princess Diana's death. Maybe some of you can remember those many years ago. I don't remember the year, but at Princess Diana's death, there was quoted in that funeral service. It said, I did not leave you at all. I am still with you. I am in the sun and the wind. I am even in the rain. I did not die. I am with you all. And again, maybe the feeling of when we see the sun or the wind, it reminds us of our loved one. And, but I wonder sometimes if this non-physical sense of heaven is really what fills even the Christian hope or lack thereof. It lacks any real sense of physical, tangible hope or something physical that is to come. It, it often is full of this sense of heaven with no earth. And I think today what I want to try to help us grasp is that I believe it's impossible to truly talk about heaven as our final destination without talking about earth. We must remake our understanding of heaven to include a renovated and restored earth. I think the typical modern conceptions that we just gave you is this typical conception of a heavenly, spiritual, ethereal sense with no earth at all. And so to do this, I wanna look at Genesis, I'm gonna end in Revelation, but I wanna broadly trace the biblical conception of heaven as our primary hope that is a restored earth. Russell Moore says the point of the gospel is not that we just go to heaven when we die. Instead, the final hope is that heaven will come down, transforming and renewing the earth and the entire universe. 
And T. Wright says God's rescue of the created order itself rather than the rescue of souls from the created order. It's not just an escape from the order but a rescue of the order as well. Tim Keller says the Bible teaches the future is not an immaterial paradise but a new heaven and a new earth. In Revelation 21, we do not see human beings being taken out of the world into heaven forever, but rather heaven coming down in the end and cleansing, renewing, perfecting this material world. So in a basic level, our final destination is not heaven or the intermediate heaven, but rather a restored earth called the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I recognize for some of us this is obvious. Maybe you've learned this, you know this. For some of this might come as some of a shock as well to consider a message or a series on heaven and primarily what I'm gonna be talking about today is earth. That might sound a little strange, but I think it's in something that we can use to encourage one another. Second Thessalonians 4.16, just having spoken about the second coming of Christ and going in and bringing this merging of heaven, in Second Thessalonians 4 it says to encourage one another with these words that it's not just interesting to talk about, but this is actually encouraging. It's actually something that encourages us, as we spoke about last week, be children of the day, children of light, stay awake, for heaven is coming. Heaven come on earth as it is in heaven, this idea. So the major takeaways from this series over the next couple of weeks, this next month, is really gonna be driving on these concepts that'll probably be found in almost every single uh, message that I do is if for this heaven series is that heaven is real right? and, and it is a place. Heaven is better than you can even imagine of anything here on earth. It's perfect and better and yet it's also physical and we will exist in a physical body there on the new heaven and new earth and it will be new. And that word new is something we'll get into, that it's not just new in like, I have no idea what something new would be like, but new in quality, meaning it is gonna be better and newer. It's an old, outdated car, and now we have a brand new car that actually works the way it's meant to work. It's a, still a car, but it's new, all right? So, so to last week, we, we looked at different things. Today, we're gonna be looking at um, kind of these three earths met in picture here. And then uh, we'll look at probably the new heaven and new earth a little deeper next week. And then I, I, I am going to be getting to, which I've already had a few people ask me questions about, but we will be getting into what, I, what is called, or theologians call the intermediate heaven, which is kind of the question we'll be answering of where are my loved ones now, right? And, and that's often the question that I think some of us are like, okay, can you get there? <laughs> and so we'll be there in a couple of weeks where we'll talk about where are my loved ones now? What is this intermediate heaven? And then we'll be closing with kind of a, a, a bodily resurrection. We'll be talking about the resurrection in heaven. And then for the final sermon in this series that I'm aiming for, I don't promise this, but I, I do think the final sermon will be kind of some general questions about heaven. So if you have questions about heaven, uh, and you want to submit them throughout the next couple of weeks to the office, to myself, to the email, please get those in. I'll try to answer some of those in that sermon. I think I have a general sense of what those might be, but if you have particular questions, please submit them, and I'd love to try to go after some of those towards the end of the series. Again, I don't promise I'm going to have all the answers, but I promise I'll try to find one, right? All right, so that's kind of this big general summary as we jump into this idea. And, and as we kind of start off in this series in many ways today, I do want to kind of quickly look at some of the ideas and the terms that we're going to be using. And when we talk about heaven, it's a word that means a lot of things. If I say the word bark, that means a dog that barks, right? But that dog that barks can also mean that there's a tree that has bark on it. 
Or around Christmas time, you really get that, that peppermint bark. You know what I'm saying? That stuff, so good, right? Peppermint bark, right? Yes, that is some good stuff. Or tree bark or a dog that barks, but it's the same word. Okay, so when we talk about heaven, it can mean different things. And yet, depending on the context, it is what we're talking about. Heaven at its base level, base definition throughout the scripture, heaven is ultimately the dwelling place of God, the abode of God. Wherever he may dwell is heaven. Yet, the heaven can also be the atmospheric heaven, the sky, the clouds, the rain. It could be the celestial heaven, the space, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. Or, as I mentioned earlier, can reference the intermediate heaven, which is the one that I think most of us often think about. This intermediate heaven being away from the body is to be present with the Lord. This intermediate heaven, as we wait for him to remake the new heaven and new earth, there is this intermediate heaven. It's not a purgatory kind of sense. There's no kind of payment or paying off your sins in this place. That is a human fabrication, but rather an intermediate place. As Paul said, my desire is to part to be with Christ, for that is far better. Second Corinthians 5, we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. The thief on the cross, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Some of you know that, right? Heaven is also referenced as that, as a paradise. It is like a garden. It is from garden to garden that the Bibles we speak of. The tree of life in the garden in Genesis and in Revelation we see the tree of life in Revelation 22. This garden to garden, this Eden to a new made Eden, this kind of parks, this uh, beautiful garden-like hanging gardens that we see in Babylon in these places, this word paradise references that as well. But this idea that we often think of in heaven, it can often relate to this main concept of the Bible, this new heaven and new earth, which is our final destination that God will remake. And so I think sometimes when we think about earth and heaven, we, we don't often think about them together because the Bible often reminds us to forsake the world, right? First John uh, 2.15, do not love the world or anything that is in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. And what we do is we equate the earth and the world as the same thing. Often when the scripture speaks about the world, it's speaking about the world system, the system of Satan and sin that infects the world and the curse of sin that is a part of every culture in this world. Do not love that system of the world, but seek the kingdom of God, right? And so, so often we allow that understanding of world to kind of infect our hatred of the earth. So let's just treat the earth as it is because who cares, it's all gonna burn, nobody gives, nobody cares, right? And so that kind of sense, I think, can happen, that earth and world, we just kind of lump them in the same thing. So our goal in life is to escape all of that. And so I think that that separation can happen and I hope to be able to understand, help us think those things through a little bit today and throughout this series. But the three earths, let's get down to that. We're gonna start in the first earth, the, the trick here is actually the same earth, I believe, but uh, the first earth is the Edenic earth, which we find in Genesis 1. If you want to turn there, you can, the Edenic earth. We're going to spend a very short amount of time here because uh, there's a, technically a short amount of time in the Bible spent on it. And then we're going to spend most of our time on the fallen earth, and then we're going to look at uh, the new earth. Okay? Those are the three earths we're going to look at today. Again, I, I really view them as the same earth, but we're just looking at them in the three different states. The Edenic earth is he, heaven and earth together, the fallen earth is heaven and earth separated. And then we find in the new earth, God converges the two again. Heaven and earth converge. So the new Jerusalem descends from heaven and converges on earth. And we find God's dwelling place is with man in the end. So 
Much ado here. We'll, we'll jump in here. Edenic earth, heaven and earth together. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and the spirit of hovering over the waters. We see these things. If you peruse down through Genesis 1, you'll find heaven and earth mentioned a variety of different times. Verse 8 says, And God called the expanse heaven. Some would even say that could be translated sky. But what you have here is heaven and sky, celestial, uh, atmospheric, and sometimes God's dwelling place. It's almost as if the writer's converging and merging the two, and they often seem the same thing. And I think that's on purpose. There's a purposeful sense of God saying in his good original creation, it was as if the two were the same, that God dwelt with man in the, new, in the original heaven and earth. We find that they were, as he repeats over and over, the Hebrew word for good, tov. They were tov. They were tov. It is good. It is good. It is good. In fact, when he creates man, it is very good, he says, right? So this is the sense we have from Genesis, this goodness that God makes God gives mankind a mandate, have dominion over this earth. Hey, you guys are supposed to rule and steward and take care of it. We were made to work right from the very beginning to manage and take care of. And so Genesis 1.28 speaks about this. God let us make man in our image. And then he says in 20.28, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living creature that moves on the earth. You are to rule over the earth as God's viceroy. This is a beautiful mandate. We had purpose in the beginning. We had a reason for here. God has gifted us to this and spread out and manage God and man together in this. And yet Genesis 3 comes along and we know exactly what happens there. The fall. So we move on from the Edenic earth. We move to the fallen earth where heaven and earth are separated here. And God's walking in the cool of the garden and speaking in conversation with Adam and Eve. And what do we find them doing in verse eight? He's walking in the garden and they were hiding themselves from the What? from the presence of the Lord. I find that fascinating. God's dwelling place is with man. We find them together and they are hiding from the presence of God, which is impossible. And so they cannot find themselves a place to hide. They cannot go far enough. God finds them. They interact and they find that they have broken God's law. They've rebelled. They've sought to become like God. Now enter into this conversation shame and pain and sin and death. It severs a holy relationship with God and with creation. Curse is, comes. Banishment from Eden. Separation is made. Yet destruction of the earth does not happen. Do you notice that? God does not immediately destroy everything but rather gives a battle plan in Genesis 3.15 in which he is gonna make all things right again. He is going to send a savior who will, in a sense, crush the head of the snake which is mentioned in Revelation. That evil serpent, that great dragon that's mentioned in Revelation, he loses in the end, right? And yet he puts a cherubim to guard the Eden, to guard the place, the place of unity of heaven and earth. It is gonna be, have a guard around it. In a sense, it's not destroyed, but in a sense, it's a hope that it will be restored one day. Mankind and the earth receive a curse, man's dominion and rule over the earth, however, was not removed either. Adam and Eve are still called to have dominion over the earth and we are today are still called to subdue the earth but yet the earth is not gonna work in conjunction with us now. 
Cursed is the ground because of you, the Bible says in Genesis. And we find ourselves at odds with the ground that is, brings forth thorns and thistles and it and is this challenging work and to dust we will return, it says. And so Anthony Hokima says that the total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem this entire creation from the effects of sin. That purpose will not be accomplished until God is ushered in the new earth, until we reach from paradise lost has now become paradise regained. I think I've used that, uh, that quote before, but it's that concept of paradise lost, paradise regained. That's a, a, a famous epic poem. People often study it in English courses by John Milton, written in 1667, called Paradise Lost, which depicts this lost kingdom in Genesis. And then this sense, his follow-up to that was paradise regained. I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about the entire story of the Bible. So we look at this Old Testament outlook and in our mind's eye, maybe you joined us last year for our study through the Bible, uh, uh, the story of the Bible. You've heard some of these themes before there, Uh, but it carries this same idea, this fallen earth that we find ourselves in where we experience and see. Unfortunately, because of the news, we see it on a daily basis. Some of us recently experienced these things that are so hard where we see murder, destruction, adultery, and judgment, and lying, and all that sin brings with it. We see this on the earth. We see a sin-cursed earth. We see, yet at the same time, God's grace being poured out, calling of Abraham and Israel, and the grace that he gives them, and the forgiveness, and then the sending of Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, we see this picture of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness throughout, despite sin's effect. People of Israel build the tabernacle and the temple where God gives them instructions to create a place, a sanctuary of sorts, that would be God's earthly abode among the people of God. We see this as a type, as a picture of what would come in one day. Even the guard, uh, even the temple and the tabernacle were designed with garden imagery. They did not have any pictures of God, but everything was a tree or a pomegranate or a flower or a leaf. Everything designed in that place of the tabernacle and the temple was to represent a garden atmosphere. This place that would be a dwelling place where God could be with his people. And we see this as a type and a foreshadowing of the final new earth that would be to come where God could dwell in holiness with his people. And then you turn and skip all the way from Genesis through those parts to the book of Isaiah. We skipped a lot there. You're very thankful for that, right? We go all the way to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 17. Isaiah 65, 17 is a fascinating chapter, 65 and 66. Verse 17 says, For behold, this is the words of Isaiah here, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. The sense of former things of that world, sin's system will not come to mind. And then he goes on to describe this incredible system this incredible, beautiful system, God's kingdom, you could say. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't fill out his days. That's incredible, verse 20, and all these hopes. Uh, Verse 25 says the the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, right? There's this peace that's presented. There's this wholeness, there's this lack of fear. And then you skip over to 66, verse 22. 66, verse 22 says this. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring be before 
uh, so shall your offspring and your name remain. And then it says that then we'll come and, and we'll worship God in this place. And, and then it speaks of in the very end of the New Testament, Malachi chapter four. Let me just read this really quickly. For speaks of the great day of the Lord. And it says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when the arrogant at the evil doors will be like stubble. There's this day of reckoning. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, and it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you. So there's this sense of judgment. There is a sense of fear in that second coming. We spoke of this last week. And it says in verse two, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out of leaping like calves from the stall. Meaning you will go out from school like a schoolboy who's out of class, right? You will go like calves leaping out of the stall. You will rise with healing in his wings. This is the future hope that we have, this beautiful sense of the sin-cursed earth finding a hope of a future healing that is yet to come. Do you see these, these prophecies, these hopes, these things that are pouring out throughout the Old Testament? Then we come to the New Testament. We see all of a sudden Jesus, boom, right there in chapter one, two, and three, all of a sudden the story about this incredible Messiah, this one who's come, this child who's spoken about by John the Baptist, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Matthew three says that, repent for the kingdom of heaven. Matthew has this distinction that he says, kingdom of heaven more often than he says kingdom of God in a sense they're the same but repent for the kingdom of heaven is here meaning Emmanuel God with us God's heaven is in part here right now among us as Jesus walks among his people so Jesus then takes the cross he rises from the dead and resurrection becomes in Easter time the most central thing to the entire Christian faith resurrection of Jesus is everything without it we've got nothing 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, what hope do you have? That's Jordan's translation, okay? That's what it says, basically. What hope do you have? We got nothing. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, you better not hope to be risen from the dead because if he can't do it, you certainly can't, right? That's what it's saying in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like scriptures make it abundantly clear. The resurrection of Christ. And Anthony Hokima says this, the resurrection of Christ is the pledge and the guarantee of the future resurrections of believers, of you and me, that we will be resurrected one day. He's the first fruits. All previous resurrections mentioned in the Bible were again followed by death. But only the resurrection of Christ was never followed by death. And it is this type of resurrection which all believers look forward to. Because as Christ arose, believers too shall arise. Jesus conquered the grave, sin and death. He becomes our resurrection, the sealing of our promise and the power that we look forward to. He inaugurates this kingdom of heaven. Like uh, I think even Brian mentioned that the inauguration of the church, the beginning here, the sense that Jesus starts that, the pouring out of the spirit empowers it. Jesus' resurrection ushers in his reign as king from paradise lost to paradise regained. He's that, that, that life that comes poking up through the concrete and that future that we all too will poke up through that concrete and break through into new life, into a new restored earth like a tree of life. Jesus then ascends, which we just celebrated uh, in, in part as it was just read in Acts 1 and Acts 2 uh, and 3. Uh, Brian read these passages speaking about Pentecost, the church beginning, and that these last days are the time in which the prophet Joel, he'll pour out his spirit, 
We see this birth of the church, the message of the gospel then goes forth all over the world. The good news of Jesus Christ, which we have been given now to be the light in the dark world, spreading the news that our king reigns and he's coming again. That's our message that we get out, spreading and making disciples of all nations all over the earth. But yet, what do we do right now? Where are we at right now? In the sense, we asked the question even last week, why are we not in heaven right now? Like I, if he saved me, what am I doing wasting my time here? Is that, have you ever felt that? Why can't I just get out of this and go there in that, that mindset? And I think what's helpful is for us to consider and think through kind of the, the timeline of the Bibles, how we think about these things is very important. We, we call this the already not yet kingdom. And I want to show you two quick graphs here, two quick pictures that I think might help. The first one, if you put it up, is this basic outline. These are very basic. They don't include a variety of other things. But if we think from beginning as we just began in Genesis 1 in the creation, the past age, Christ's first coming when he came at the resurrection, then we find language throughout the scripture that talks about this age or the last days or the ends of days. And in the Bible and theology, we talk about the word eschatology. Have you ever heard of the word eschatology, yeah? This word eschatology for the study of the end times. And so often we think only about the end times in regards to like the last day. But in Jesus' coming, that's part of eschatology for that ushers in and begins the last days. So when Jesus came on the cross, uh, that is a, a significant moment in the study of eschatology. And then we are ultimately awaiting Christ's second coming on the last day, the end of that age as we look forward to the new one that he's making in the future. Look at the second one that maybe helps explain it as well. This similar mindset here as we think of this present age that we find ourselves in and the age to come. In the first one we have first coming of Christ, Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet the age to come, the second coming of Christ and the general resurrection of the dead, just kind of all lumped in a very simple timeline here. But yet we find ourselves in this middle phase. Do you see that? The already and not yet, and I hope to explain that briefly before we kind of bring all this to a close. But already, not yet, we find ourselves in this last days that Jesus has spoken to us by his son, as Hebrews 1 says, the first coming and the second coming, this two-stage envelopment of this, where we find ourselves already having received the beauty and the guarantee of salvation, and yet not having received the fullness of it yet. God has blessed us and guaranteed and sealed us with these things, and yet he will glorify and complete those things upon his second coming. We see the life bursting through the cracks, but it is not until his second coming when the cracks and the concrete is gonna be completely destroyed and new life is gonna become from that place. And so ultimately we see salvation happening in this kind of two-stage. Jesus is coming, his rescue, the already saved and seated with him were justified and being sanctified. And then it is in his stage two when he returns, he will consummate and complete the fullness of salvation where there will no longer be any struggle, any harm, any pain, any crying. We will be completely whole and holy in him and with him. And so it is in this tension that we find ourselves that helps me best explain how I find myself each and every day. For it's the relation between two stages that the blessings of the present age are a pledge and a guarantee of the blessings that are still to come. Life in between the times. We live, as David Brioni says, in a theological tension. 
for by faith in Christ, all of these spiritual blessings that are ours already, but the full enjoyment of these blessings is not yet ours to come, it is still to come. This is the life of faith, the assurance of things hoped for in the future, and the conviction, the conviction of things not seen in the present. This is life in between the times. I can explain this from a variety of different passages, but in Romans 8, in Romans 8, I'll read a, a passage here in a moment. You can turn to Romans 8 if you like, but in Romans 8, 15, it says, you have received the adoption as sons, it says. You get that, Romans 8, 15. You have received the adoption as sons. Yet, in Romans 8, 23, in that same chapter, it says, yet we eagerly wait for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. We have received something, yet we wait for the completion of it. Do you see that in Romans 15, 8, 15, Romans 8, 23? It's like Jesus came on D-Day. He, he did wiped out. Uh, victory is, is secure. The, the enemy's ultimately defeated. We're just waiting for VE Day, victory in Europe Day, when the war is completely over. The battle's already been won. We await with hope in the in-between. We see this in Romans 8, like I said, in verse 18. Verse 18 and 19, it says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, what does it say? Waits, verse 19, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What waits for the revealing? Creation waits. Let's keep reading. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, meaning in the beginning, the futility and the sin that fell upon the earth. But because of him who subjected it in hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free, creation, the earth, the, the world, the universe, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation, get it again, the whole earth, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly and we, what? Wait. Isn't that, I don't like the word wait, but it says it a lot in this chapter. We wait for eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're gonna have a physical body that's been redeemed. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes from what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait. There it is again, for it with patience. Creation is waiting for its restoration. Our bodies are waiting for their restoration. But we wait not, or we grieve not as those who have no hope, but we grieve with hope. We wait with hope. We're waiting for the new creation, the restoration, and the renewal of all things. As St. Peter says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Wait. Yet, our waiting is gonna be worth it because in the end, the new earth. This is the final here. The new earth is the heaven and earth converged. There's a togetherness, a separateness, and then a bringing together in Christ that his spirit lives with us, that this kind of outposts of heaven, which are these churches all over the world, and, and your light that you bring everywhere, you bring this kind of heaven to the world, and we see that we bring God with us, and yet it is then, it is fully consummated and completion, completed when he returns and heaven and earth converge again. Since where God dwells, Anthony Hokima says there, heaven is. 
We conclude that in life to come and heaven and earth, they will no longer be separated, but now they will be merged. Turn with me to Revelation 21. See, I told you we'd end in Revelation, right? To me, thought we'd never get there. No, I hope, hope it's not been too bad. Here we go. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 1. I mean, and the, guys, some of you have heard this verse like uh, hundreds and hundreds of times. Try to just put yourself in what this, like almost allow yourself to imagine this beautiful new heaven and new earth, like for the first time. Think about it. Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth that we spoke about earlier, they have passed away and the sea was no more. This sense, the sea and the darkness and the chaos and the confusion and the pain, it has passed away, but what's now left is this beautiful thing of we see converging. Verse two, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Where is it coming? Coming down out of heaven from God. And then what's the picture? What's the metaphor he would use to describe to us something that we can relate to this? He says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It is the marriage supper of the lamb. It is the wedding celebration. It is not this fearful thing, but a thing of joy as God is prepared. I go away to heaven to prepare a place for you, for in my Father's house there are many rooms, many mansions. There is a place that God has prepared and he brings it to us and he converges the two again and restores the earth. It says, behold the, and then it says in verse three, then I heard a loud voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, or saying, look, for the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. And then verse five, and he is seated on the throne saying, behold, I am making all things new. A new heaven, a new earth, a holy city coming down and converging with what's to be restored, a dwelling place of God to be with man. He's making all of these things new, both creation, the universe, both your body, both me, as we are the first fruits of the spirit, the new creation, as it says in Christ. And it is in his presence, as Psalm 16 says, in his presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And so our, my conclusion for us, my conclusion for this message today is that our final destination isn't necessarily this, this, this spiritual existence of heaven, but rather it is our final destination we find ourselves living at peace with God in the new heaven and the new earth in something that is so incredible. It's not this cloudy, uh, I can't relate with existence. It's here, it's, it's probably more earthy than, than we've ever thought about before. It's gonna look like a lot of which we love and enjoy about this earth will be just there, but so much better. 
There's gonna be no sin corrupting it. There's gonna be no shame wherever you go. There's gonna be no pain and suffering and separation. There'll be openness and relational uh, uh, authenticity with one another. We won't be hiding behind these different images we create for one another. This new heaven, new earth will converge in righteousness and a holiness where the light of God will fill the earth. His glory will cover it as the waters cover the sea. Our final destination is welled up in the fact that God promises to restore the earth and he promises to, just like he's promised to restore you to its fullness, its original tov, its goodness, like a restoration pro- process. Like so many of you are well familiar with, you buy a beater, broken down house, it's a foreclosure and you restore that to its former glory and even better than it was before. It's a restoration. Randy Alcorn says, and this words, wordings are common in our language and we forget how common it is, restoration reconcile, redeem, restore, recover, return, reclaim, renew, regenerate, resurrect, and resurrection. It's a restoring, it's a re from something that was which is now better. It is the original creation which was lost, which will be restored when he returns. This new earth, all of the things we love to do and experience, will there be food? You better believe it. It's gonna be the best food you've ever had. Is there gonna be enjoyment and sports? I really hope so because I think there will. Is there going to be life and exploration and adventure and gardening and creating and writing and doing and playing and laughing? Yes, yes, and even much more, so much more. It's done all without shame, without pain, without tears, without loss, and it's all done with God. Revelation 21, three, then I saw a new heaven and the new earth. The first heaven has passed away and then I saw the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned to his husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Let's close in prayer before we come to the table. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for your word. We ask God you'd be glorified in this midst. We ask God that you would be honored in our place as we even come into as we call it a sanctuary God we come into a place of where we find our hearts are drawn to heaven we're drawn to to your presence and to your glory as our hearts well up and desire to worship you in spirit and truth yet we know in so many ways we find ourselves incomplete in this so we pray God that you would come your scripture tells us that you are going to come again And your scripture reminds us in Revelation 22 that you are coming soon. And so God, may it be today as we'll sing. May it be today, Lord, we pray. Would you come, Lord Jesus? Yet God, in this place that we find ourselves, would you give us faith? Would you give us hope and encouragement? Because Lord, we desire to worship you in spirit and truth. We desire to worship you in wholeness and in love. Give us this desire in our hearts for today and to love our neighbors as ourselves until you return. We pray that we'd be the church that honors and glorifies you in this way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.